Hello, and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 363rd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Matt Parbs, author and director of the Sawmill Museum, who is going to talk to us about his book, The Hidden History of Clinton, Iowa. The history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapsaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called History is Local, and today we'll be talking about the book, The Hidden History of Clinton, Iowa, with Matt Parbs, author and director of the Sawmill Museum. Matt, why did you, uh, what, what inspired you to write this book? Well, simply, uh, January 2019, the History Press asked me to. So uh, being in the museum, we, of course, have a lot of content in the museum, and then we do regular articles in the Clinton Herald on whatever topics I, I find interesting for that couple of weeks. And so they uh, basically saw a couple of those and asked if uh, I'd want to do a book. And the rebuttal was that, uh, you know, their usual hidden history would, you know, kind of go from the founding of a town to just a few years ago and be full of, you know, things like the most famous pet that you might have forgot about. And I said, well, I only know about 19th century Clinton. And uh, if I do a book, it's basically just going to be a... uh, uh, an exhibit guide and sales pitch for the Sawmill Museum and our mission, and they said uh, good enough, and so that was uh, you know kind of how we got started to do the book. All right. Okay. So, question: uh, You've been on our show before, but uh, pretty much, if you can, uh, give our listeners a bio about yourself. Are you from Clinton originally? I mean, when you write about. Were you working with the museum or you're writing about Clinton? Is this sort of a, uh, you know, your your home root community? Or uh, give our viewers a little bit about that, please. Yep, so I'm uh, born and raised from, in Springfield, from Springfield, Illinois. I was going to be a history teacher uh, and then walked into the National Museum of Land Surveying in Springfield uh, right after graduation and kind of entered the museum field. And I came to Clinton in March of 2013 to be the director. So, um, yeah, in a sense, the hardest part is, and still is for me, a lot of it's the geography and particular spellings of names. You know, there's six different ways to spell Chauncey, and it's like, well, which (laughs) way did he really send it or spell it? And all those little things, and, you know, Rivertown's the way they're laid out, and you're thinking, okay, is this north or south, Avenue Street? (laughs) All right, um, Matt, I'm interested. Did you do um, any additional research? Uh, I'm just thinking if you're doing a a, uh, a history book that, that you may have been wanting to go out and talk to people in the community and, and track down things like that. Um, did you do a whole lot of that, or did you have your information basically at hand? Yeah, actually, uh, there was, I'd say about a half of the book is – just kind of a compilation of articles re kind of mixed together. And then there, there's a lot of new stuff in there. And then a lot of excuse to kind of dive 
deeper into things. And, you know, one of my favorite books is Railroaded by Richard White. And, and so it's kind of taking that 19th century model for how the railroads, transcontinentals were, were built and kind of putting it in there. Um, so it was asking kind of also more importantly, this is kind of some different research questions that uh, in an article you can't really flesh out. But now that I have, you know, 200 pages, I can keep these themes uh, kind of running through uh, all of them. So that was a, a, a big thing there was, you know, four or five kind of big themes I, I kind of wanted to flesh out more and, and kind of, you know, uh, basically uh, um, find the answers for. Uh, so, yeah, there's interviewing people like what life was like in South Clinton, which no longer exists, or trying to get a sense of, you know, the greatest generation for, for Clinton, right, the 1940s and 50s. Or it was just simply, I've never seen it anywhere. There's a, basically a whole chapter of every African-American in 1880. So it was trying to, you know, find those stories and, and things like that. Uh, if I noticed that I had not seen anywhere kind of a, a focus on a topic, so this book is a good opportunity with especially the title Hidden History to focus on those type of uh, research questions. Okay, when writing this book, uh, not to uh, give away everything, but what were some of the uh, – Surprises that you came across when doing the research for the hidden history of Clinton. Uh, the, the surprise was uh, how easy it, it was eventually uh, to to really kind of explain. Uh, you know, for Clinton, you, you got the ball club that's the Lumber Kings, and you have like the myth of the most millionaires per capita, and those aren't exactly true. Clinton never. You know, cut the most lumber. We didn't have the most millionaires. Uh, but really, as you did more and more, you really got a sense of that, that inward monopoly with Weyerhaeuser, you know, Augustana and all that down there in the Quad Cities, how they really took over like 90% of the entire kind of Northwoods lumber trade, if you will. And so it was really interesting to see uh, just how far-reaching uh, that was, and I kind of we started changing a little bit of our our tour. You used to kind of say, "Oh, where did all this money go?" Or uh, you know, you you might have uh, the impact ended in 1915, let's say, uh, and then just getting a, a better sense of uh, just how much uh, of that capital still kind of <laughs> is flowing through the nation and the world, all um, from you know cutting some some logs into lumber right here in Clinton. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm interested because even though Clinton is fairly close, uh, I really don't know a lot about Clinton. So can you give our listeners a sort of basic timeline uh, that the book runs through and, and maybe hit a couple of, of um, names of, of people or places that we would want to cover in our next segment? Uh, definitely. So uh, the book really focuses on uh, the 1830s to about 1915 or so. Uh, that's when Lyons and Clinton were developed. That's when people like W.J. Young and Chancey Lamb and David Joyce and the Gardeners and Hosford started building sawmills here. Uh, you had a guy called Weyerhaeuser down in the Quad Cities uh, taking over a mill 1870, they create the Mississippi River Logging Company. 
Uh, and basically for the next 25 years, uh, you know, they've monopolized. Uh, and uh, uh, by 1915, uh, the last log graph comes down the river. Um, so you're really focusing heavily on what life was like uh, 1870 to about 1900. Um, the, the bulk of the book uh, focusing on you know, the workers and life. And I've spent a lot of time on holidays. It's always kind of been an interest. I think it really shows a lot about a community's culture and people's culture, uh, how they celebrate holidays and, and uh, consumerism and things like that. So it focuses a lot on basically just kind of that uh, gilded age of, of Clinton. Okay. Uh, does it focus on the growth of Clinton, either as its municipality or as a community with the, of course, the expansion of the logging market and its uh, rise and fall? Uh, definitely. It, uh, um, you know, as, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of focus on on that, but we don't it doesn't so much get into uh, when you say the word like you know I don't know if I ever use the word mayor or uh, anything like that. Uh, we don't get too much into the political history, um, and, and a lot of it focuses on the social history of, of Clinton more than uh, kind of political or, or things like that. Okay. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. KALA, 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA, 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Matt Parbs, author and director of the Sawmill Museum, and we're talking about his book, The Hidden History of Clinton, Iowa. Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. Rick, the floor is yours for the first question. Thank you, John. Hello, Matt. Good to talk with you again. Uh, you mentioned in the first segment uh, that, that uh, you were looking at the, at the Gilded Age, and one of your focuses was the Gilded Age. Are there, actually a two-part question, are there still some of the descendants of those uh, uh, uber-wealthy, let me call them lumber kings, uh, no no uh, relationship to the baseball team, still living in Clinton? And were you able to talk with them and gather resources, primary resources from from uh, any documentation they may, may have had? Uh, so... Uh 
No, uh, is the easiest way to okay, say that. Okay, right the, along. The, the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the University of Iowa does have all of the Young and Curtis's business papers. So W.J. Young and Company uh, and Curtis was a woodworking manufacturer. So I've been out there a few times to look at those uh, primary sources. Uh, there's a few existing in the 20th century. So you'll see um, we have a bread and breakfast in town. Uh, and that house is the Ward House. So we've engaged with the Wards before. So there's some stories there that are from that family. Um, but the, the, the easiest way to say it is that, yeah, there's no more heirs left. And like with the Joyce Foundation, uh, the Joyce family, there are no more heirs. So it's a billion-dollar foundation in Chicago. Um, the Youngs, there's one that lives up in, in Michigan. Uh, the Lambs, unfortunately, some of the best Lamb stories uh, we just found out a couple months ago, a descendant came in. They were from California um, and and came. And I was like, ah, oh, if you were only here when I was writing the book, because those stories were very interesting on the lambs in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Okay. Okay. Um, Matt, I'm interested. You talked about the, the Ward House. Um, if we were to look at a... If we were to drive around Clinton today, how much of what's in your book would be still visible to us? Um, I'm always interested in how history either stays around or disappears. Um, so, so what would we see if we wanted to do a tour of Clinton? Would there be a lot that we would see from the time period? Uh, you know, it's interesting. In the shutdown, we're actually putting together one of these virtual tours on an app, <laughs> and it's kind of depressing that, that you know, for the most part, uh, the, the meat of what we're focusing on, you know, the sawmill industry, so the sawmill structures, the factories are no longer there. Uh, when you focus on uh, a lot of the the workers' houses and things like that, they're no longer there. A lot of the lumber baron mansions are no longer there. The only one that's still open is, is the Curtis uh, Mansion in, in the 1920s, the Clinton Women's Club bought it. Um, so, you know, really a lot of what you look at is when the mills close, all that capital to build up like our downtown and some other uh, houses uh, that are really more 19-teens and 20s and 30s. They're beautiful houses. But, yeah, that kind of 1860 to 1890 uh, for a, for most people driving through are, are not going to uh, know without uh, um, you know, some prior knowledge of, A, what used to be there, or B, that used to be a, a, a house of some renown or note. Okay. Um, let's look at, like, kind of the um, end of the law mill, uh, the lumberjack uh uh, era when things when obviously the wood was uh, running out and the businesses were starting to slide. Um, did these families or institutions uh, have a plan B that they look towards to sit there and continue to possibly have growth? Uh, did they kind of um, conglomerate in some way or the other, or did that many of them just? Um, fall with the end and because it's sounding like i must admit right when this is crashing the great depression isn't that far away either yep so um warehouser and lamb and a few others go west uh the joyces and a, a guy called gardner 
they go south to build sawmills and take control of that long uh, nexus. And then locally, yeah, the Youngs and the Lambs uh, started other businesses, but uh, they eventually, of course, uh, all move away. And um, you have places like Disbro and Curtis, the, 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 the value-added productionists, had a big boom uh, really up until uh, the 1930s. And then the six, 1965 was a flood. Um, that really kind of ended the Curtis company. But, yeah, you kind of had uh, yeah, the sawmills became uh, lumber yards. So the Joyce's still had their lumber yards throughout, you know, basically Iowa. But instead of feeding it from a Clinton source, they were feeding it from their southern uh, logs. And uh, so, yeah, you had this brief moment where they do switch. And one of the interesting things that I think Clinton figured out, uh, at least if you were someone working in Clinton, was it was actually kind of better, perhaps, that they closed. uh, Because you used to only work 200 days a year. And now with some of the different ag businesses that started in the 1900s and the steel and the foundries and some of these other manufacturers, hey, you're now employed all year. Um, and so wages kind of bumped up a little bit. And same thing with like the railroad, and different things, um, that there was perhaps better industry that came behind and kind of took over the footprint of the Clinton sawmills and, and you know, got better efficiencies out of that footprint. Okay, Rick. Yeah, Matt, uh, uh, you said uh, earlier that you were uh, you used the University of Iowa, uh, some sources at the University of Iowa. Uh, where were you able to find, if any, uh, what I call the people story, the workers, the families, uh, uh, things like that? Were you able to gather any information that describes uh, life and times in the boomtown of uh, Clinton in its heyday? So there's a few kind of oral histories that we've been able to collect, but the biggest one is uh, going at the, the newspapers. And so in the book, you'll see that, uh, you know, a lot of times what I'm doing is are, are taking, um, you know, like a book about how we celebrated holidays. And so I, that was one of my favorite books, Celebrating the Family by Pleck. And so I know the framework so I can better when I'm reading a newspaper, you can kind of better separate uh, sure. truth and, and fiction and try to get at a better sense of, okay, I know if they're talking about this in the newspaper, that means that these two cultures are trying to figure out how to celebrate Easter um, in 1890 uh, with some newfound money and some, some newfound uh, kind of meshing of cultures. Um, so that's a lot of it is kind of taking frameworks from different uh um, some of my favorite books, and taking the newspapers and some of the other accounts that you can get at locally, at like the root cellar is what we call it. Because, um, yeah, unfortunately, there's not a, there has not been a concerted effort, uh, and now the stories are mostly long gone, of collecting um, those memories of the sawmill workers. Okay. Right. So I'm, I'm interested to kind of piggyback off of where Rick was going. Um, I thought your comment about, you know, Clinton and actually the, the economy of the town actually being maybe better off uh, once the lumber barons have, have moved out and, and been replaced by other businesses. Um, are there one or two particular 
stories, either individuals or or events that that you think our listeners really need to know about um, in terms of understanding kind of how Clinton develops? Uh, yeah, I think uh, the story that always comes to mind and is in the book is about a worker called Essex Chandler who gets uh, injured in a mill um, and then goes on. I won't ruin all the stories and all that, but he's a very important kind of uh, person who's able to, you know, basically come to town right after the Civil War, uh, you know, work for a couple of basically a dime an hour at the sawmills and kind of uh, was able to enter city politics uh, later on. And uh, that's kind of an unusual kind of thing, because really the reality is, right, for a worker, a lot of them are nameless. Uh, they are basically on the roster for a couple of, of months, and then uh, they move on to a different town usually. And then I, I really do think that uh, uh, the stories we tell about Lamb especially uh, who is a lumber baron, that really kind of illuminates a lot of the um, uh, kind of the boom and bust nature, but really how Eastern capital uh, came into Clinton in the 1850s and 60s and really uh, helped connect all the dots and helped, you know, the Mississippi River Logging Company become a monopoly um, as this kind of uh, investment in the West and, so those stories really kind of show how it, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, basically someone coming over with a with a dream. It was guys coming out east that had some money and connections and figured out how to leverage all that money or capital and connection into the Mississippi River Logging Company, which then became, you know, basically a monopoly. All right, let's take it from a monopoly perspective. Uh, what about the workers? I mean, during uh, this time, there were um, large businesses that were having uh, some behind closed doors dealing with uh, labor unions or the workforce, and some that were blatantly striking and getting really nasty. Uh, are there any kind of record of that with the uh, workers and the uh, lumber yards? It's one of the things that they do a great job at, being the uh, the papers, which are usually either co-owned or uh, largely controlled by both the a political party and the and the capital, so you you don't get too many examples. But in the book, we do talk about the few examples that are um, kind of found, and it's really for Clinton especially. Uh, we talk about the ADM strike, or actually, sorry, the Clinton corn strike in the 1970s. Uh, Labor in Clinton is always, and I think Rich can probably illuminate on this too, is, is not quite as strong as you would think for a industrial river town. For whatever reason, Clinton and unions have always kind of had an interesting relationship, uh, perhaps not as defined and as strong as uh, other towns. And I think it kind of comes back to uh, this moment where you were paid the same wage throughout the entire Mississippi River Logging Company. So you really couldn't, you know, strike and say, hey, you pay us more. Um, and also the way they were able to conceal uh, the fact that some years these sawmills didn't actually make money or as much. Um, but in essence, they're paying themselves uh, for the whole production line. So they did a lot of that. 
And so there's only three or four examples in the 19th century of semi-successful uh, strikes. Now, 1906, 19-teens, the progressive movement, uh, you, you do see more successful and more sustained strikes, and you see places like Curtis Company really responding and, and instituting a company like worker compensation instead of in the 1870s where, you know, it was employees throwing a, a quarter in every, you know, year or so to, to build a, a relief fund for the workers. Um, so it, it was one of the things that, uh, and before I wrote the book, didn't make a, a connection too strongly to the 1970s, the Clinton corn strike. Um, but listening and, and researching more about the Clinton, Clinton corn strike and seeing labor mentality uh, and kind of looking through how that developed over the years, it kind of makes sense that in the 19th century there wasn't too successful of uh, unionization attempts. All right. Well, which is which is, is funny. Customary. Right, you have the railroad that is right there that does have a completely different uh, uh, story. But uh, back to you. Okay. Um, it's customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Matt, why do you think knowing about the hidden history of Clinton, Iowa, is relevant in today's world? Yeah, I think it is uh, very important to see how um, you know, basically uh, really the, the West was built and kind of see all that went into kind of developing uh, America, uh, you know, especially west of the Mississippi, uh, through the eyes of basically as many participants as, as you can. So that's really kind of the, was the, the main theme and, and focus of the book was trying to tell as many different perspectives of how Clinton built the West as possible. Because uh, they each all have their own little unique uh, uh, version of why Clinton was important or why really any town uh, would have been important. So, Okay. We will come back and wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is RRI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 363rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zappo. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, Matt Parbs, author and director of the Sawmill Museum, who talked with us about his book, the Hidden History of Clinton, Iowa, the history buff for today's show, was Rick Sweet. 
This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KAOA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hoso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>